Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. Here, Here comes the binge. binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Binge. My name is Jason Leroy. My name is Rebecca Olarte, and today we're going to cover five movies. Carol, Legend, Victor Frankenstein, The Hunger Games, and Creed. And as always, we're going to rate the movie on a three-tiered scale. Binge it is the highest rating. Consumer moderation means it's okay, but kind of meh. And send it back means life is too short for this fucking mess. That's right. Let's get started. The first movie we're doing today is Carol. Said in 1950s New York, a department store clerk who dreams for a better life falls for an older married woman. Therese Bellavet. Carol. Tell me you know what you're doing. I never did. And then it changed. She's still my wife. I love her. I can't help you with that. We've been waiting a long time for this movie, haven't we? This is the one. This is, this is, this, I feel like the whole podcast has been just a means to the end of us talking about this movie. And luckily I was able to see this one with you. You were. It was, it was a very enjoyable experience. Um, Definitely worth uh, seeing. Uh, which is not the official review. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Stain, last time you bring me to a movie. Stay in your lane, Olarte. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I, I, I mean, see it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'd say I'd see it again. You I, like I mean, dyke sex? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go see it. This is definitely the elegant review <laughs> that Carol deserves. <laughs> we are, we are. I'm so glad I asked for your 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 nuanced cultural critique of the movie. <laughs> You're delivering Listen, in spades right now. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Look, I wish I would have seen Freeheld, but instead it was Carol. I feel like my review is a little bit more Freeheld. Yes, it would have been a little more baseball caps and flannels. Yes, that's true. That's true. But instead, we got Carol. We have Carol. Uh, which is, there's, it's not a baseball cap and flannel lesbian movie. Oh, no. Definitely not. It's, it's much more glamorous. It's much more swanny. I keep thinking about possibly trying to film myself. Like, I don't do Vine, but I feel like I could make a really <laughs> funny Vine of my impression of, like, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara sitting across from each other. Just the faces they make. Oh, wow. Because so much of the movie is just them looking at each other. It and is. And Kate Blanchett... Just kind of like, just kind of like rests her chin on the back of her hand and just kind of looks over her cheekbones, like, hello, <laughs> Therese. And then Rimora just like sits there, you know, just sort of like chin down, kind of looking up, kind of being like, hmm, hi, hmm. And, you know, and it just kind of goes back and forth like that for, for about two hours. That's the and face of lesbian romance. It is. And then, and then and there's Kai, Carrie Brownstein toward the end, just for kicks, just for lesbian shits and giggles. Yeah, that was like a an Easter egg for yeah. everybody. <laughs> it was. Yes, I think, you know, I, I wish that I could go see it. Like, I don't even know. I was going to try to think of, like, what would be, like, the most lesbian theater to see this movie. I don't know. Is there, like, in San Francisco, is there, like... Probably Castro Theater? Is that the most lesbian one? I mean, I guess I do always hear lesbians hissing when I see movies <laughs> at the Castro Theater. There's always that kind of, like, you know, air leak moment whenever something offensive happens in the movie. And you just hear, like, whatever lesbians that are in the room just start going, like... And you're like, oh, yeah. well, they're here. But yeah, it would be fun to like go see like a super lesbian theater and just hear everyone like, whoa, when Carrie Brownstein oh, shows up. <laughs> That's my impression of lesbians seeing Carrie Brownstein in mass. It feels, I mean, it feels like this is a lesbian movie for gay men. Is Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess that's, yeah, I mean, it's directed by a gay man. So, and it has, you know, it certainly has the aesthetic uh, that I have mostly seen this movie being championed by gay men mm-hmm. in the press. Because, uh, you know, it's all aesthetic. And that's very Todd Haynes. Definitely. Uh, you know, he knows how to construct just a meticulous, exquisite movie uh, that might sometimes be more of an exercise in aesthetics and in sort of uh, concept than in flesh and blood and passion. Uh, and I think that when his films have been emotional, it's almost sort of been by accident because mm-hmm. that's sort of the homage he's doing, like Far From Heaven is by far his most accessible right. emotional film. It's the film of his that crossed over the most into sort of like non cineast audiences seeing it and being like, oh, I like that a lot. And it's not because he's like this like 
wellspring of emotion as a director is just because the homage he was doing was to Douglas Sirk melodramas in the 1950s, which were very floridly emotional. Right, and the acting, the actors really went ahead and, I mean, it was Julianne Moore. and um... Right, yeah, the actors can never play it as, as a shtick. Mm-hmm. You know, like, actors have to find the truth of whatever the moment is, so they're not going to be, like, playing in this kind of arch way. Right. Uh, so, you know, so she and Julia Moore was also pregnant when they were filming that really? movie. Really? I didn't know that. So I think that added to it because she had, you know, crazy pregnant lady hormones. Is that is that your way of saying term. lady yeah. hysteria? Yeah, she was hysterical. I think you can One see it in her eyes. One episode goes through, yeah. goes by. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Here it is. Check it off your, your bingo card. Uh, <laughs> Jason's racist and sexist comments. So, yeah. So continue to explain uh, lesbian culture to me. I will do my best. Uh, I feel like there's a lot that I can bring to this that you haven't considered. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a woman. Oh boy, here we I go. I only get partway there by myself. Uh, so, but no, I think that's I think that's a fair point. I haven't really seen you know too many uh, you know sort of lesbian cultural critics taking up for this movie yet. I did see Rose McGowan speak out very passionately uh, in favor of it. Oh, really? And she hates everything right now. So <laughs> she really uh, went in and defended this movie on social media, and uh, you know said that there should be more movies that really. Uh, tap into the way that women think. So she felt very represented really? by the depiction of women in this movie. And she feels like it should be exemplary uh, and that other filmmakers should look to it uh, as a guide for how to have more uh, sort of lived-in, resonant depictions of female characters. I could see I could see that for being a, a period piece and highly stylized that it does, in a way, more than you would think speak you know, kind of mm-hmm. have a, a more accurate women woman's point of view, um, and also so furthering the point that I always try to make that you only read books that have movies coming out um, mm-hmm. about them. You read The Price of Salt. I did. I read the book that Carol is based on, The Price of Salt, by Patricia Highsmith, who also wrote uh, Strangers on a Train and The Talented Mr. Ripley, and uh, has been enjoying quite a renaissance uh, really? as a Definitely. sort of as a sort of a byproduct of the the promotion for this movie. Everyone's writing about her now and finding out all these strange things, like that she you know kept snails under her tits when she would travel. Fun things <laughs> um, that didn't really make it into the book that I was reading. But that's a pre nine eleven world where you could do that. <laughs> Try doing that nowadays. I know it's just like the kid running through the airport in Love Actually, and you're like, he yeah, would be shot. Exactly. Same thing. Same thing with these snails. Uh, so, no, I did read the book, and uh, the first time that I saw the movie, all I could focus on were all the differences, which I feel like is not unusual. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. you've read a book, and I feel like, especially, I don't read a whole lot of books. Like, I'm always reading something, but it takes me a long time to finish a book. So I always feel like I have, like, a lot owed to me. I feel what I'm yeah. saying is I feel entitled. Uh, <laughs> I was going to throw that out there. Double bingo? Yes, there. Boom. Um, helping you guys out. Uh, so I was like, okay, I've read this book. I read it right before I saw the movie, so I was really ready to go. And there were a lot of things that were different. Uh, you know, mainly the book is told through the point of view of Therese, who's Rooney Mara's character, the 19-year-old shop girl. And uh, so nothing really happens in the book that she is not there to witness mm-hmm. or that she's being told about by someone else. Whereas the movie makes it very much equal weight co-protagonist between Therese and Carol, yeah, Kate Blanchett's see, character. You see the whole sort of other life of mm-hmm. Carol. Um, and yeah. even in scenes where Therese isn't in it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of scenes in the movie that are just Carol and her husband, Harge, played by Kyle Chandler. Or Carol and her best friend Abby, played by Sarah Paulson. There's even oh. a scene between Abby and Harge, which is just like could not be more comically removed from the the perspective covered in the book. Uh, so Sarah Paulson. Sarah though. Paulson. We can take a sidebar on that. Sidebar on that. What a standout performance. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She really is. Like, Such a small character in the in the in the movie, but she really really shines yeah yeah she just she always connects she always seems to have a really specific idea of who she's playing i think that's mm-hmm, so key mm-hmm. to you know great performance is like knowing who you're playing yeah i feel like she's alice and janney 2.0 hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's good i think alice and janney is a goddess so i think that sarah paulson is certainly in 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 the line of goddesses with her mm-hmm. and i think that you know sarah paulson just always knows exactly who she's playing and that specificity kind of comes through in the details that she brings to her performances. Yeah. Um, I still am sad that she did not get more attention for 12 Years a Slave. Uh, oh, right. Because, I mean, it was, you know, Lupita Nyong'o's category, you yeah, know, to own absolutely. for supporting actor. 
but Sarah Paulson in that film was just chilling. Is bingo number three, or should we just let that one? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> really, it should have been Sarah Paulson who won. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. I'm like, <laughs> what I'm saying is that the white lady worked harder. <laughs> God. <laughs> is what I'm saying. Uh <laughs> Really starting early and starting fast. You know, <laughs> early and often. That's how I like to be offensive. Uh, so, yeah, so she's a marvelous actress, and she gives Ryan Murphy performances far better than what he deserves from the material he gives her throughout the American oh, right. Horror Story franchises, which is true of, like, every actor on those shows. But So she's, once again, wonderful in Carol in the kind of small but audience-connecting character of Abby so this this movie is uh, it's about there's like an illicit lesbian affair and there there's a bit of uh, gender conversation or 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 gender role conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about how men were portrayed in the film? Well, I think that one of the things that the book uh, did more explicitly than the movie is really depict Patricia Highsmith's resentment toward male entitlement. Uh, and the way that Therese is just watching, sitting silently watching these men in her life just taking up so much space and being mm-hmm, so loud yeah. and being so gregarious and being in, uh, you know, while she is just sort of forced to sit and contemplate herself and her role in all this and who she is and who she might be and who she might love, uh, while, you know, these men are just kind of blustering around, being just man-children, falling down drunk and being fools. And uh, I think that, you know, since the movie doesn't have narration, thank God, they don't resort to narration, uh, you know, it uses more just sort of subtle visual cues to illustrate that. There's a scene toward the beginning of the film where Therese is in a car with a bunch of drunk guys, and she looks Mm -hmm. outside the window, and she sees, like, a bunch of little boys just, like, playing on the sidewalk. And I feel like that's sort of like a little visual pun, like, yep, these guys are children. And we were sort of describing even how the movie starts. Like, mm-hmm. it starts in this very tense, very beautiful. They're they're in a restaurant. They're, it's it's a very um, low on dialogue, high on eye contact moment um, mm. between Carol and Therese. And then it's interrupted by a male friend who couldn't be, couldn't fit into that, that moment less. Yeah. He and comes sort of barging into the room. Crashes right in. Interrupts the conversation, you know. Just starts touching Therese, you know, overrides whatever they were talking about, starts inviting them to whatever party he's doing. So I feel like the film and Phyllis Nagy's screenplay are very smart about showing instead of telling yeah. the ways that, you know, just the different rules uh, socially, culturally, for men being loud, taking up space, and being obnoxious, mm-hmm. uh, while the women just have to kind of, you know, sit ornamentally on the sidelines. Right. Uh, so I think that the film's depiction of that was very smart. I think that the two, the, so, you know, two primary male sporting characters here, we have Richard, Therese's pseudo-boyfriend, played by Jake Lacey from Obvious Child and The Office. And as mentioned before, Harge, Carol's uh, estranged husband, played by Kyle Chandler. And I and think... Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights. Uh, so, and I think that neither character is done... Uh, it's not, you know, it's not like a man-bashing movie, Mm-mm, you know. No, absolutely um, not. And it shows them, you know, they're both very kind of frustrated and confused. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, understandably, the actors aren't playing the roles with any judgment. I think that we're just seeing two men that are just couldn't begin to understand why a woman would want a life that wouldn't involve them. Right. So still, there's that kind of there's that indictment of, you know, of male entitlement. But at the same time, these are still sort of like flesh and blood characters. And we can understand why. Harge, after having been married to this woman and having had a child with her, would be so puzzled. Like, why? Why not me? Mm-hmm. Like, you see toward the beginning of the film his genuine yearning to just be with the woman he loves. And then that gradually turns more and more angry. Right. The more that she overtly rejects him and the more that, she, more that he sees her with Therese. So let's talk about the chemistry between Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. What are your thoughts on that? It's hard, it's hard to buy them as a couple. I think that there's, it's, um, it's a difficult... There's not a lot of setup into what what they have to be interested in each other about, other mm. than physical attraction, right. which you kind of see off the bat. But it doesn't really build from there as far as compatibility or any sort of like, especially, you know, as the movie continues and there are these 
uh, grand obstacles, these unfortunate situations that happen, that like you, you, there, there needs to be like a reason to propel you to continue to go down the, this road. And I don't, like, I don't buy that it's there. Hmm. Um, maybe if, sort of, for lack of options, possibly. Hmm. Um, but I don't buy it. Oh, you know, longer than the first moments. You know, you kind of there's you know the the meeting of eyes, which is one of the mo- better best meeting of eyes scenes. Hmm. Probably since like Mulholland Drive, mm. um, that just like you're you're in that moment. It's just the three of you looking at each other um, with lust. Um, but past that, as they continue to spend time together, it's really hard for me to understand okay. what's there. Yeah, reading the book, uh, Therese is nowhere near as kind of uh, outgoing as she comes across in mm-hmm. the film. Even in the film, she seems somewhat shy, but in in the book, she's downright awkward. And so you you do kind of think to yourself, like, what does this polished, refined, well-to-do, 30-something housewife from New Jersey want with mm-hmm. this, like, very awkward, gangly, nervous, inexperienced 19-year-old girl? Right. So there is that kind of question that you ask yourself reading the book, like, what is this? And I think that the context there is that, you know, this was Highsmith's fantasy, and she was in the role of the young girl. Right. Since this was inspired by when she herself was working a job at a department store like Therese in the film and in the book and saw a woman who looked a lot like her description of Carol and Mm -hmm. she was just taken with her and obsessed with her. So I think that it all is a sort of a fantasy of a young queer person having that first moment where you just see this this, this other person of the same sex and you're just so smitten and you just everything about them seems like everything perfect and dreamlike and idealized of what you're attracted to mm-hmm. about that about sure. about your gender and uh and i think that so that's really we're looking at from a more an adult's point of view because now here we are in our 30s we're not teenagers having those feelings anymore so i think we're looking at it from carol's point of view instead of Teresa's, and we're like carol what the fuck's wrong with you <laughs> like don't don't like don't dump all your shit on this 19 year old girl right she doesn't deserve that she doesn't deserve to have to have all the baggage of like a woman going through a divorce and you know like giving up her child and all these like hardships she's just starting out you know Therese. like this is her very first relationship with a woman mm-hmm. and uh and it's an awful lot <laughs> to ask this young girl who's still just figuring out who she even is to take on right i mean you could see i could see it being exciting for the Therese character to sort of like go go down this road but for sure um but i don't want to spoil it but i i just am very i'm well, I have I'll, a hard time buying how I'll, well i'll ask if you were if you were rooting for them in the end are you rooting for them to be a couple i was not rooting for them i okay. was rooting for Therese to figure things out on her own hmm. and maybe that's from life experience <laughs> But Fair. I just want to tell her that they're they're more fish in the sea, and they they don't all look like Gary Brownstein, <laughs> for better or worse. Uh, yes. Uh, so, and and by the way, if you're you know a Gary Brownstein fan, and I feel like if you're listening to us, there's a good chance you are, unless you're Mima. Uh, <laughs> just know that she's in the film for about sixty seconds. 45 tops. She has uh, approximately eight words that she says, and that's about it. So don't expect much from Carrie Brownstein. Uh, she does have a role that almost seems like a joke at her expense. <laughs> uh, in the sense that she, the, the effect that meeting her has on Therese, uh, it's, it's not a flattering effect. Uh, so we'll say that. What's your rating for Carol? Carol is... It's a binge it. You know, yeah. the first time that I saw it, I was not crazy about it just because I kept thinking about the book and thinking that the movie was really underwhelming. But I was so glad I got to see it a second time and uh, take it for take it on its own terms instead of, of you know just viewing it as a shadow of the book. If nothing else, it's a beautiful Christmas movie. Yes, it really is. <laughs> yes, take take the whole family. Carol is out now and is rated R for a scene of sexuality, nudity, and brief language. For this very special uh, movie review, we have a very special guest this week to offer her two cents on this movie. Noted lesbian cultural critic, registered puppet sex offender, and the original lesbian named Carol, the one and only Carol Wangstrom. Carol was unable to attend the screening due to several warrants out for her arrest in San Francisco. On charges ranging from aggravated assault of a Lyft driver to indecent exposure at the SFSBCA. So we asked her to watch the movie trailer and give us a review. Here's what she had to say. At first I was rooting for the protagonists to stay together, 
But that all changed about a minute and 12 seconds into the trailer when Kate Blanchett's character says, If he can't have me, I can't see my daughter. If I was Rooney's character, I would have skipped down before I became emergency contact at that kid's school. Everyone who spent time with me either at the bar or in bed or my bar bed know that I don't go for ladies with kids. I dated this woman that had twins and let me tell you, they were both cranky, took up way too much time, and were 36 years old. They're the reason why my town can't have an intimacy scene anymore. Anyways, this Carol won't be seeing Carol. Thanks, Carol, for that illuminating perspective. Up next, we have our pick of the week, Creed. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick, pick, pick. It's a pick, pick of, of the week. week. The former world heavyweight champion, Rocky Balboa, serves as a trainer and mentor to Adonis Johnson, the son of his late friend and former arrival, Apollo Creed. A great fighter once said, It ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Okay, so this week we have Carol, the Todd Haynes classic lesbian story. And we have Creed, the which is like Rocky 6, Rocky 7. Mm-hmm. And this is the pick of the week. It is. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I know. No one's more surprised than I am, believe me. Uh, but Creed has a certain element of surprise that is why I named it the pick of the week. Because who in their right mind would expect anything special from the what's essentially the sixth Rocky movie? Uh, but Creed is so much more than that. Uh, it, it packs a huge emotional wallop. It has so much passion. It's such an important movie at this time, in this place. Uh, it's I, I couldn't be more excited about it and more pleasantly surprised at how moved and touched and just enervated I was by it. Wow. Okay, so can you say more about being at the right time? What do you mean by that? Well, I feel like Ryan Coogler is the director and co-writer of this film, and he is from Oakland, and he previously did Fruitvale Station, uh, Okay. Uh, which, of course, uh, was the film about the last 24 hours in the life of Oscar Grant, uh, the young man who was shot and killed by a police officer on New Year's Eve uh, here in the Bay Area a few years ago. And uh, so I feel like now uh, Ryan Coogler has had the ascent that happens for a lot of male directors, very rarely for female directors, unfortunately, mm-hmm. yeah. where he has a well-received indie. And then he gets called up by the majors to take over a, a franchise and try to breathe new life into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the angle that they that he's taking with it is really unexpected um, because it is not about Rocky. Rocky is a supporting character in the movie. It is about uh, a young man named Adonis, who is the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who is a character who was played by Carl Weathers in, <laughs> yes, who, yeah, who I can only laugh about because of, obviously, Arrested Development. Right. Uh, so, but for what's worth, you know, now Carl Weathers is like a household name to me because of Arrested <laughs> Development, even if I will always laugh when I hear his name. Uh, so... So, you know, we have this story about Adonis uh, growing up in the system uh, without anything because he doesn't know who his family is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he is adopted at a young age by uh, Apollo's widow, who is played by Felicia Rashad. Really? Yes. And uh, so she takes him in, um, and she lives in extreme wealth and comfort. Uh, but he never is able to shake this kind of anger and this need to fight um that feels on some level passed down by his father mm-hmm. on some level it was just you know sort of uh produced in him by by coming up in the system throughout his formative younger years and uh so and he never feels comfortable with the privilege and he just wants to learn how to fight properly like his father did and uh and so he eventually casts off his privilege and goes to philadelphia to find rocky balboa and ask him to train him. And uh, and so I think, you know, when I say at this time, you know, I feel like this is a, a great moment for stories that are asking big questions about race in America and uh, being able to create a really outstanding role model character for young black men to look up to, which Adonis is that kind of character. Uh, you know, we see him just pursuing authenticity, pursuing things that challenge him, 
Uh, and Michael B. Jordan is certainly on the cusp of becoming an A-list star Absolutely. at this point in his career. Absolutely. Deservedly so. He has been working for a long time. He's been in some incredible things going back to The Wire and Friday Fruitvale Night Lights Station. and Fruitvale Station. It He's sh- changed a lot, though. I mean, it, it, well, I was going to say also it should be noted that he has a scene in the movie with the actor who played Avon Barksdale on The Wire. Really? And I was like shitting myself. <laughs> I was like, Wallace. That's amazing. Wallace, get away. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, no, he's changed quite a bit. And he is like in crazy shape in this movie. Like he genuinely looks like he has like a cantaloupe where his shoulder should be, a cantaloupe <laughs> where his bicep should be. And it just like looks like he's just smuggling cantaloupes like under his skin. <laughs> but no, it's just his crazy muscle arms. He's come a long way from the wire. He has. He has. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he is, he's incredible in the film. But one of the bigger stories, well, I don't want to say bigger stories, but, you know, continuing with this narrative of how pleasantly surprising Crete is, Sylvester Stallone oh, yes. uh, gives far and away the best performance easily of his career since Copland, uh, which was sort of an unexpected bid for character actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, credibility that he took in like 1996 or 97. Yeah, that was when Copland came out. It's wow, I thought it was like 2001. Nope. Really? It was the late 90s. Okay. And uh, and this is, he, he, there's just something so ineffable about him taking on this character again at this point. Uh, and there's a soulfulness to his performance and just sort of like a careworn quality that is just immediately engaging and just sort of disarms you and wins you over and he very abruptly has suddenly joined the best supporting actor uh consideration that's amazing conversation um it's it's crazy to think that all these years later we're talking about sylvester stallone possibly getting nominated for an oscar for playing rocky balboa in the year 2015 uh but here we are and he actually he really deserves the consideration this is a really just yeah gorgeous performance from him what about the women in the movie? I, have, I can't believe Felicia Rashad's in this. She is, yeah. Felicia Rashad's in it. God love her. Uh, hopefully she's come around on the whole Cosby thing by uh, now. Right. Because she was certainly a defender uh, toward the beginning. But, you know, naturally, I mean, they worked together for a very long time. Definitely. So, uh, you know, he, I'm sure, is a good friend to her. But uh, so she is, Felicia Rashad's always just a great screen presence. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just so warm and 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 you know mama like <laughs> you know she 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 she's got the maternal thing down pat and then Tessa Thompson has a wonderful role as a essentially as Adonis's love interest but they do take pains to bring more to her character oh that's great uh she plays a sort of a left field R&B artist along the lines of FKA Twigs and um and so her music career is very important to her and they show Adonis go see one of her shows and can I just say that I would be at every one of her shows. Really? Like they like I don't know who they called in to like produce the music for it's her. It's like an empire situation. It is an empire situation because it's like some original music and it sounds like FKA Twigs and like that is like the best thing that you could sound like. So and uh, Tessa Thompson really caught my eye in Dear White People. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, uh, she's just she's just a ferocious screen presence. Like yeah, she's definitely. crackles with energy. And she's um, gorgeous uh, and just terrifyingly intense and intelligent. And uh, so I I love her to bits. And I I can't wait to see her in more and more things. And she does not disappoint in this film. She and Michael B. Jordan have, like, crazy chemistry together. So does this make you want to go back and watch uh, all the rest of the Rocky movies? (laughs) Not even a little bit. (laughs) Nope. And I think that's, that's part of what's so great about this movie is that, you know, like, you don't, it doesn't require any real knowledge of of the previous Rocky movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they just, you know, they spell it out, you know. There was this man, Apollo Creed, he died, and that's all you need to know, really. Right. Um, you know, like, there's little things like, you know, you know, Rocky's working at a restaurant called Adrian's and all that. So, you Aww. know, there's little, little Easter eggs there if you're, you know, even passingly familiar with what happened before. They also find a way to explain why his son isn't there because in the last Rocky movie, which I think was just called Rocky Balboa, mm-hmm. it was all about him and his relationship with his son. Um, and then he's like, oh, my son's somewhere else. It's like, all right, well, good. Uh, <laughs> figure that one out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just out of all the times that an indie director has been called up by the majors to breathe new life into a franchise, I cannot think of a time that it's worked out better or been more inspired and more heartfelt and more passionate than this one. 
And it's your pick of the week, so I'm assuming the rating is going to be binge it? Binge it. Binge it. Go see Creed, especially, I'm going to say, straight guys are going to be sobbing hysterically. (laughs) This is like sports movies always get straight guys going. Mm -hmm. And especially if there's sort of like a father figure dynamic to Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Like, I found that out the hard way when I wrote a pan of the movie Warrior, which is about MMA fighters and like their complicated relationships with their dad. Oh my God. The hate mail I got for that. Because straight men, when they get emotional, they feel embarrassed. And then and, 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 and they like, like, this is a true story. And then when they search to see if it's a true story, they found my review. And I was like, no, it's not a true story, you dummies. And they're like, well, hey, fuck you. And uh, yeah, I was in a in a world of hurt over that. So, But uh, but yeah, Creed, it's, it's, it's so good. Go see it, guys. Creed is out now and is rated PG-13 for violence, language, and some sensuality. Next up, we have The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. As the War of Panem escalates to the destruction of other districts by the capital, Katniss Everdeen, the reluctant leader of the rebellion, must bring together an army against President Snow, while all she holds dear hangs in the balance. Tonight, turn your weapons to the capital. Turn your weapons to Snow. So it's last movie. Part two, mm-hmm. finale, 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 finale. <laughs> I like saying finale. <laughs> it sounds more dramatic. No fucking joke. It's the finale, guys. It's the fucking finale. <laughs> I want to see this one. I yeah. also really want to see Creed. Don't ruin it. But was it worth breaking it out into two movies? No, I think that I think that the the kind of the proofs in the pudding. Like, if you can make a, a last book into two great movies, then do it. Like Harry Potter, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, both parts of the final uh, book were great movies. And then there's Twilight. And then there's Twilight, where none of the books uh, <laughs> turn into great. We're movies. turned into great movies, <laughs> right? So in this case. There is not a single person in the world, except for the most like egregious of contrarians, who would say that Mockingjay Part 1 was in any way a good movie. Right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like it was poorly done or anything. It was just unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing happened. It was all just setting it up for this Part 2. So I think that the much better option would have been to just make one giant, even a three-hour movie, out of Mockingjay the book. The fans wouldn't have complained. It's like the right. fans are like, oh, whoa, hold on. We're not going to sit here for three hours. Sure they will. Absolutely. Like, it's, as it stands now, I think even part two is like two and a half hours or something. So I think that they should have just been judicious about cutting it down and just trying to make like one big three-hour epic out of the final book, even though people don't even like the final book. Right. You know, it's like the least popular book of the series, and they've made it into the most movie, <laughs> which just makes no sense. And it feels like... Kind of like in Twilight, how the movie came out, the whole franchise had already been around for a bit. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like with Harry Potter, people were chopping at the bit the whole time. Same thing with kind of Game of Thrones. It's sort of coming out and being written. Uh, but this one, I feel like we've been on the Jennifer Lawrence train for a while. Uh-huh. And I also feel like in the in the span of these movies coming out, she's done so much work that has ranged in quality and she's ranged in age and experience it's kind of hard to look back at her being like a teenager Mm. anymore do you think do you think this sort of applies to the hunger games does it make you feel like carol looking at therese when you look at a little bit a little bit you're like oh i don't know she's too young i'm finally realizing that i'm now the carol (laughs) and no longer the therese sunrise sunset indeed we all reach our carol point at some point <laughs> uh yeah i feel like we are i feel like mockingjay part two is coming out just as everyone's starting to feel kind of over the whole thing because you know it had hunger games had a lot of momentum for a long time absolutely but i feel like mockingjay part one kind of fucked that all up uh because it made no one happy right. <laughs> it was not an exciting movie uh, in my estimation, the high point was Catching Fire. I think it was by far the most exciting movie. I thought okay. it had the highest stakes. I thought it was just uh, the movie that packs the most thrill into it. Because you've you've done the exposition in mm-hmm. the first movie, and now the second one just gets to just go bonkers. Uh, so, But I feel like after Mockingjay Part 1 last year, and the whole thing of like making everyone wait a whole year for the other one, yeah. it's like, okay, well, well, I think we're kind of all moving on, and 
certainly Jennifer Lawrence is moving on and you know she has done so much since wrapping these movies and she's done with both of her franchises this and X-Men so now right, she'll just right. continue being the world's girlfriend uh, <laughs> falling all over the place mm-hmm. uh, but yeah no I think that I think this movie is coming out and obviously it's 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 doing very well uh, just as you know the final Twilight movie did really well at least on opening weekend when mm-hmm. all the super fans want to go see it but uh, I don't know. I think that I think that we're, we've we've just passed the moment when we all still cared about Hunger Games, and that's good that there's no more to come after this because I don't think yeah. I'd give a shit. That would be a hard sell. Yeah, definitely. One of the great things about the Hunger Games uh, story and franchise is that um, it's a political message. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the characters kind of go through uh, a, an eye-opening experience um, outside of their own lives, and and they where they're kind of thrust into these situations where they're able to get a higher view and then we see corruption and and class warfare does does the finale does the final does the finale stay (laughs) true to that message it kind of does until it doesn't oh uh let's say that the final the 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 finale of the finale thank you uh is really egregiously disappointing uh in that it makes it entirely about the personal it makes entirely about which boy katniss settles down with and don't tell me I, I would never and it picks her sitting on a hillside with like her new family uh just being very pastoral and maternal and it and it has so it has something to do with uh you know with sort of the political message uh interesting it, because i felt like the whole like that whole katniss and gender role was was very progressive in this movie oh she could not be more traditional female gender role in the final scene oh like could not 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 possible not even a little bit possible disappointing hmm. you'll see what i mean when you see it yeah I guess so I guess yeah so it is it is is definitely a letdown uh you know in that it, it kind of it you know love triangles are always fucking stupid yes and just in the sense that the fine the finale of the finale is all about which boy she chose and about the family they've built together uh is is just the worst just the worst oh damn that's a real bummer yeah, so that's a letdown. Uh, I don't feel like, you know, even though it does, you know, this this the the finale really does focus on the apex of this class war between the capital and District Thirteen. Um, you know, it it has that, and then it's just kind of done, and then that's not really what you walk away thinking about at the end because that's not what the movie has on its mind in its final moments. Hmm. Um. In in talking about the the cast of the the people that she's involved with involved with as she starts to kind of attack the Capitol, it's a huge supporting cast including Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. and this is what he was filming when he passed away. It is correct. Yeah. Um. I, I there were kind of a lot of rumors when that happened. Like, was he was there going to be CGI? Were they going to sort of recut the whole thing? Because I think that it it happened right before part one came out. Uh, it happened, well, he died, I think, well, yeah, he died, uh, in, like, January of 2013, so it was actually, like, 10 months before Mockingjay Part 1 came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and so in that movie... Or something like that. Or was it the beginning of 2014? Uh, it all runs together. <laughs> uh, point being that, uh, yeah, that at the very least, Mockingjay Part 1 had not yet come out yet, and it right. was, it was some months away. And he, does he have a presence in Part 2? He does have a presence in Part 2. However, uh, what the word was when he passed away was that there was at least one big Plutarch scene uh, that they had not filmed yet. And uh, and the workaround for that that they come up with is to have his speech basically read in letter form by Woody Harrelson's character, Hamish. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, Katniss is sort of in captivity, and then Hamish walks in. He's like, well, I got a letter from Plutarch. And uh, <laughs> and then sort of, you know, the the screenplay has to, like, do some fancy footwork to explain why Plutarch would have left. Right. And uh, and then there is, um, and then there are two bits where it is clearly sort of like some kind of CG work. Really? Um, where, but he's just kind of in the background. So I guess, like, moments where they feel like, okay, Plutarch should be there in the background. So we're just going to pop him in there. And then in the very final time they show him, uh, they're watching a, a sort of a ceremony take place on uh, on a TV and he's standing in the background, and one of the characters has a line like, oh, well, it looks like Plutarch is the one who won the games after all, or something like that, which I feel like probably was not in the book or in no. the screenplay, but they just wanted to have some kind of nod to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, so, you know, it's not 
it's not much of a performance. You know, it was never meant to be. It's a right. really just small supporting role uh, in a movie with uh, with a dozen of them. But the one nice thing is that the majority of his scenes in the movie are with Julianne Moore, who is his longtime scene partner going back to Boogie Nights right. and Magnolia. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And uh, so I was just comforted knowing that for this final film of his, that he at least is gets to share the screen with you know a longtime partner who was his acting peer uh, and you know sort of a member of his artistic community and he wasn't just surrounded by a bunch of like little whippersnappers <laughs> so uh so Look i at that, you woody harrelson <laughs> exactly like back off harrelson so this is about julianne so as everything is about julianne mm-hmm. what did you think of her performance in this movie you know i think that i'm going to choose to forget that she did these movies uh just huh. just in general uh, I, I think that they have added nothing to her filmography. They've added, I think, probably quite a bit to her pocket. And good yeah, for definitely. her. Girls got to eat. Uh, or not, as the case may be. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, she, this is not, there's really nothing interesting about the character of Alma Coyne, I think. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's a turn. Things take a turn with her in the second one. And I thought maybe that would make her interesting. But no, still, I was just like, this is just not not interesting it was definitely a surprise when she was cast for that did were you who were you picturing um because you, you read the book yeah I did, I did i did read the book i was i was almost picturing somebody i didn't know mm. it wasn't something i was expecting to like hang a performance on somebody in particular yeah. especially because there were so many other people that you're familiar with i could picture <laughs> i feel like the go-to for this kind of thing if it were a mini series on like the sci-fi network would be someone like michelle forbes who played marianne on true blood Oh, <laughs> um, and, she, and she was in like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, like she always gets. And she's actually, duh, she actually is fucking in Mockingjay Part Two. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why I think she was probably like the you know the the she's like the understudy for the role of all the coins. They just like have her in the background playing some like supporting military type character. Uh, but no, I don't think that this this role. There's nothing about it that's like oh well, that's a Julianne Moore role. So I'm happy that she got probably a fat-ass paycheck, and I'm happy that there's, like, a whole generation of kids who probably know her now because of that character. But, no, it adds absolutely nothing to her filmography. Unlike Elizabeth Banks, for for whom it does an amazing job. It does, yes. Yes, Elizabeth Banks is definitely one of the success stories coming out of this franchise. So many great supporting actors. Um, Do they... It, it being the last movie, they spend so much time killing them all off in interesting and fun ways. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like that kind of, it's what we've come to expect from a part two finale, where it's just like everyone dying except for the main characters one by one. Um, but there were two actors who really stood out to me. Uh, one is Jenna Malone, who has been playing. Another standout performance. She is incredible in this film. And just one scene, really. She has one scene where her and Katniss are in a hospital together because Katniss like has... Like, somewhere around 11 scenes where she just wakes up in a hospital. So, she just comes to, like, oh, what am I doing? Uh, so, in one of those scenes, Jen Malone comes in with a shaved head and just sits down on her hospital bed. And just the energy that she brings to her performance in that scene yeah. is really memorable. It really cuts through. Uh, another is um, a Broadway actress named Patina Miller, uh, who plays uh, an officer who ends up having a really pivotal role uh, in the film's finale. And she... I'm sorry, in the film's what? I'm sorry. In the finale of the finale okay, of gotcha. the finale, mm-hmm. she uh, she has just she looks very striking and she's very commanding and very kind of uh, your eyes go to her and uh, and so she and Jenna Malone were the two supporting characters who definitely cut through to me uh, this time around and uh, so I will leave the whole franchise thinking of them. Wow. So that said, what are we going to rate this guy? You know, it's a consumer moderation. Uh, I feel like they just—they really fumbled with splitting the final book up into two movies. Uh, it really undid a lot of the goodwill that it had built up with the first two movies. Uh, but I can't throw the whole thing out. So I'm going to say for this final Hunger Games film to consume in moderation. The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 is out now and is rated PG-13 for intense sequences of violence and action and for some thematic material. Now we're going to take a look at Legend. The film tells the story of the identical twin gangsters Reggie and Ronnie Cray, two of the most notorious criminals in British history, and their organized crime empire in the East End of London during the 1960s. Reggie was a gangster prince of the East End. Ron Cray was a one-man mob. Your brother is violent, paranoid, schizophrenic. What I'm trying to tell you is that he's off his rocker. 
Wow, no, 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 no. Two Tom Hardys would say somebody I know <laughs> who thinks he's attractive. People well, find him so sexy. There is like an animal magnetism about Tom Hardy that, yeah. And I think also, I think, I think that I'm like, I'm not projecting, I swear. Uh, but I feel like people look at him and just imagine that he will just wreck it. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. I think he has like a Mr. Plow kind of appeal to him. <laughs> The thing about him that I that I don't see the attraction is that he never looks the same mm. to me. Um, yeah. You could it's a it's like he could have done I'm not there all by himself, and I would have been like, is that Tom? Oh my god, that's a, nope, that's still Tom Hardy. Oh, is that a lamp? Nope, that's Tom Hardy. Yeah, because he can be very frumpy. They can you can really easily make him look kind of like a frumpy dude. Yeah, or and, even like very lithe and uh, I guess yeah. when he was younger, he like a very feminine, soft. Um, slight of a man mm-hmm. to Bronson. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, you shave his head and he just looks like this kind of blunt-faced monster. Right. Which uh... <laughs> is my OkCupid profile name. <laughs> Thanks for the shout-out. Yeah. Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding. She's taken. I'm married. <laughs> so anyway, is it sexy with two Tom Hardys? It sounds not. But it, it, for somebody it might. You know, it's it's not super sexy. Uh, even though I was I was delayed to find out that one of the twins is actually gay. Oh. Uh, so. But not the cute one. Uh, you know, not 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 the cute one. Mm. Uh, the other one. The other one is the gay one. And um, and they show there's like references to him banging dudes, um, but and because it's kind of it's by far the it's a really fun character the gay the gay one, uh, and the gay one is Ron Ronnie Cray. And uh, and he's kind of like the loose cannon in general. Okay. And uh, so he's sort of, and he's really defiant about making sure people know he's gay and he doesn't care. And in the early '60s in oh, London, wow. you know, it's really so. It's, it's you know, he's it's really fascinating. He commands the fear and respect because everyone's terrified of him because he's a fucking psychotic. And he like will like flaunt his boyfriends around. And be like, you got something to say about this? That almost makes it sound like it's interesting enough to see the movie if, for. If they had only focused on him, but instead they kind of bury him the most to the side in a way and like keep him like the colorful support. Okay. Because the, the film is narrated by uh, the wife of Reggie Cray. Uh, the wife is named Frances, and she's played by Emily Browning, who is this very sort of Cupid doll faced uh, actor who was in Sucker Punch and a few other things. And is by far the least interesting part of this story. And normally I'm all about having like the female narrative, but mm-hmm. goddamn, is Frances dull. And, the, you know, she's married to the dull brother. And <laughs> so she's just one more degree removed from the interesting brother. And uh, so that's part of what sinks the movie is having her be like the entry point for the audience. And she's like, you know, like, oh, well, those were different times, the 60s, you know, and all that, you know, and, and Ronnie and Reggie were running the town. And oh, all that my. It's like, oh, God. Just cut to the chase and get right to the... Yeah, it's like, bitch, we don't need you to be, like, interceding for us in this story. Right. Like, it would have been perfectly fine to just have the story of Ronnie and Reggie Cray being told to us. Like, we don't need the narration. The narration is entirely unnecessary. It's not such a crazy leap to imagine the London in the 60s right. that we need you to be, like, setting it up. Like Everyone has sure... seen Austin Powers. Yeah, it's like, it's that was that was basically a documentary. So I think that, <laughs> you know, this is, we didn't need to have that narration. So Reggie is an awesome character, and Tom Hardy is having a ball playing him, playing both of them. You know, he gets to play one who's basically himself, that's the way you can tell them apart. Uh, so, or I think I've been switching up the names a little. So Reggie is the boring one, not Ron. Reggie is the one who just looks and acts like Tom Hardy. Okay. Like, there's really nothing. It's just Tom Hardy in a suit, being dashing and, you know, handsome and charming and sometimes scary, like Tom Hardy. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then Ron, um, the physical appearance difference is he wears glasses. Oh, big difference. Okay. <laughs> he always has his brow furrowed. And he has prosthetic lower teeth. Oh. So, so they're identical twins? So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely just like, oh, well, no, he's in glasses. You can tell. <laughs> and I can't remember if they ever have any sort of like twin fun where it's like, oh, but he's, but you're wearing glasses. I thought you were Ron. It's like, nope. <laughs> it's Reggie. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, Tom Hardy has, a, you know, it's a really weird performance just because the character of Ron is such a fucking weirdo. And, um, and, you know, he has, you know, a lot of scenes where he's playing opposite himself. 
Yeah. How does that? How does that pull it? How does that end up? You know, I mean, I think you know we're at a point now where I guess effects-wise, it's super easy to do that because I feel like I see it in a lot of movies and TV shows where you have you know one orphan black, mm-hmm. and, you know, being one where you have like six, seven of Tatiana Maslany's all in the same room together. Right. Uh, so it seems like it's no longer a, a, a great technical feat, but Tom Hardy definitely he has a, in particular a an enormous knockdown drag out fight with himself oh. in a nightclub. Uh, where it's like just two Tom Hardys beating the shit out of each other, throwing each other into tables and over bars and all that stuff. And it works. And yeah, it works. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that, of course, as an audience, like you're just thinking like, okay, how are they doing this? So that kind of automatically takes you out yeah. of it. Because you're like, okay, so like the, the back of the head I'm looking at right now is a, is a double. You know, <laughs> that's not actually also Tom Hardy. Uh, so Tom Hardy has a ball. And at least one of the two characters is really, really fun. Um, but the the narrative, the tone is just very shitty. It's just mediocre. And the writing for this was uh, the Oscar-winning director for L.A. Confidential? So Brian Helgeland wrote and directed this, and he wrote L.A. Confidential, and he won an Oscar for Amazing that. Amazing movie. Yeah, just a great movie. And this does not compare. And you can tell that he like he's thinking he's in that same zone mm. because it's kind of, you know, it has that kind of kinetic, like, you know, just playing period music, and it's right. people in period suits and dresses, and it's an old-timey crime story. And so, like, it's all there, the DNA, to have sort of a, 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 a callback to L.A. Confidential. But it lacks that movie's heart. It lacks that movie's sophistication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just doesn't work. So the send it back. It's a send it back. It's a send it back. Yeah, life's too short for this mess. Just, just, <laughs> just wait for some kind of like compilation best of Ronnie Cray reel, so you can watch Tom Hardy playing the psychotic gay one because there's no other reason to watch this. Legends is out now and is rated R for strong violence language throughout, and some sexual and drug material. And that brings us to our last movie of the week, Victor Frankenstein. Told from Igor's perspective, we see the troubled young assistant's dark origins, his redemptive friendship with the young medical student Victor von Frankenstein, and become eyewitnesses to the emergence of how Frankenstein became the man and the legend we know today. You have the chance to be part of something. Oh, what? Being electrocuted. Chased by monsters. And hunted by the police. Well, if you're going to concentrate on the dark side. <laughs> so, Frankenstein story. Yeah. Again. Mm-hmm. In a new way? No. Okay. I mean, kind of. I mean, they think it's a new way. It's like a prequel, kind of. It's one of those things. It's like, oh, well, what if it's from Igor's perspective? Uh, which, which is, is something nobody ever asked for. No one has ever been like, you know, I think there's some there's some there's some blood left in this thing yet. If we just have it from <laughs> Igor's perspective, uh, which basically just means that in the beginning of the movie, you have to see Daniel Radcliffe sort of like bent over, kind of like ape walking around. Uh, oh, excellent! Humpback style. Excellent. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, he has a lot of strong looks in this movie. He does. Uh, when he when we first meet him, when we first meet Igor, he is working at a freak show. I thought you were going to say like a McDonald's for some reason. <laughs> He's first working at an Orange Julius whenever he meets the doctor. <laughs> in and, the mall uh, in, right, in he Parma. serves him the wrong drink and then things get heated. <laughs> uh, so no, uh, Igor is at a freak show. And uh, and he is styled to resemble. I, I would go ahead and say it's basically Robert Smith of The Cure. Oh, okay. Because uh, he has this kind of you know like white theater makeup and sort of like crazy red marks around his lips, and he has hair is kind of all teased up. And oh yeah, he's basically serving like hunchback Robert Smith realness. And I wasn't <laughs> mad at it. I wasn't. Uh, and then later he gets a makeover because if you thought that Victor Frankenstein was not the kind of movie where you get a makeover montage, you would be mistaken. <laughs> this sounds ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so he gets a really forceful makeover. Uh, it sort of it has a few stages uh, because, and I was going to get to this a bit later, but there is a really delightful homoerotic undercurrent to the relationship between Victor and Igor. Really? Uh, and Victor is James McAvoy? James McAvoy. Hey. Okay. So you're like, I'll take your word for it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, because that's the thing, and the, the cast in this movie is fantastic. You know, you have McAvoy and Radcliffe and then also Andrew Scott, who plays Moriarty on Sherlock. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, plays a sort of like religious zealot detective who is on the case and wants to, you know, bust Dr. Frankenstein because he's playing God. Uh, and so you have these three just 
dynamic, incredible British actors all kind of at the tops of their careers uh, as they're making this movie. And, and it's it's not in, in service to any of them. But so whenever Frankenstein first gets Igor back to his home, after, you know, he goes and just cruises for rough trade at the, at the carnival. <laughs> and Tale he, as old as time. Mm-hmm, and then he finds, you know, a guy, a guy in a cage. Like you do. Like you do. And then you're like, I want you to come home with me. And Mm -hmm. uh, so he smuggles him out, takes him back to his home. And then he sort of very aggressively pins him against a column, kind of like William Baldwin banging Sharon Stone in Sliver. Okay. And uh, and then he... So it turns out that the hunchback is just an abscess. And so there's a really graphic scene of him draining the abscess. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. that That includes him sucking some of it into his mouth. And then spitting it out. Oh, God. So there's that. And then... Is he... that... You're calling that homoerotic? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, have you never seen gay sex, Rebecca? <laughs> That's basically what it is. Uh, then... You call that an abscess? Oh, my God. <laughs> you gotta get out the poison. Uh, and uh, so then... <laughs> and then after he's done, like, sucking him out, uh, <laughs> he forces him into a corset. Uh, and then, like, it's kind of like a cross between, like, a sling and a harness and a corset. Um, to correct his posture because, you know, mm. he had this giant abscess for, like, his entire life. And so after he drains that, he's like, okay, now you can learn how to walk like an upright person. But first, <laughs> I need to, like, put you in these, like, insane kind of leather steampunk garments to, like, force you erect. Wow. And uh, and so then just – and then after that, it's just kind of the usual, like, two men living together, kind of having little lover spats every now and then. Uh, so there's definitely a home rock quality to it. And after – the initial makeover, Daniel Radcliffe finally shaves and washes his hair, at which point he resembles nothing so much as, like, Jodie Foster circa Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> like, very, like, I think, like, our audience actually, like, laughed when like, they first show him, like, freshly shaved with his hair, because he just looks pretty is the only word you could describe. <laughs> he just kind of has that bright Dan Rad kind of, you know, sparkle in his eyes, and he's like, hello, and, and you know, and just has a full Jodie Foster wig. And, That's uh, amazing, and he has that Jodie Foster wig for the rest of the movie, and that is his made-over look. I was maybe that that is why I when I heard of this movie, I thought I had seen. I, apparently, I made it up that this was going to be some sort of like madcap kind of gay musical thing, kind of <laughs> like um, uh, like a Rocky Horror Picture mm, Show mm-hmm. type thing. It has a lot of it has a lot of uh, sort of. It has a lot of campy, humory moments in it. Okay. Uh, Yeah, our our screening was definitely full of crack-ups. And especially James McAvoy, in particular, gives a very sort of uh, over-the-top, scenery-chewy, eccentric performance. He has, uh, yeah, he has a lot of fun with the character. And uh, Daniel Radcliffe just kind of has to play straight man to him while he, like, sort of just, like, sashays around being crazy. Uh, so it has that kind of, that kind of element to it, but then ultimately it settles into being much more serious for the second half of it. And, uh, and I guess I can see where, you know, the producers would think because of the success of like Penny Dreadful Mm -hmm. and, you know, even drafting off of like American Horror Story Freak Show that maybe there could be an audience for like another take on this kind of character. Um, but you know, I think the difference with Penny Dreadful is that it kind of one-ups them in the sense that it's like the Avengers of old classic horror characters. It right. has all of them. It has all of them. And so, like, there's, there's, and it's, you know, doing fresh things with them. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing that this movie could do to compete with that because it kind of is still sticking more close to the story in a way, the classic story as we all know it. And, uh, and yeah, it has some kind of, it has some fun with it, but it's definitely not that kind of, British action comedy. It's not like a Hot Fuzz or a Shaun of the Dead um, where, you know, it's like super fast cut and, you know, lots of referential fun. Like it's way less inspired than that. Like it's way more dull. So I, well, I am, I honestly can't guess how you're going to rate this movie. (laughs) Is there a reason to see it? I I can't say that there is. Like, I really don't know who this is for. I don't know why everyone agreed to do it. Uh, <laughs> it. It makes no sense to me. Like, there's just nothing fresh about it. It's coming out in prestige movie season as a prestige yeah. cast, but this is a fucking piece of shit spring movie if I've ever seen one. <laughs> and I have no clue 
uh, why this is even a thing that we have now in the world. It sounds like something like like you and your gay friends would watch wine, drink wine and watch on like a Sunday night. Yeah, I mean, like, I wish that I could even say there was, I mean, yeah, I guess, okay, yeah, we would make fun of it. That's true. <laughs> like, sandwich between some Housewives episodes. Right, yeah, yeah. We could probably watch me the first half hour, at least, just until the makeover. Yeah. And, you know, and, like, the weird sliver sex homage. But after that, then, yeah, there's nothing to watch here. So it's getting a send it back. Send it back. Life's too short. Victor Frankenstein is out now and is rated PG-13 for macabre images, violence, and sequence of destruction. All right, guys, that does it. Uh, Thanks for tuning in for another edition of the Binge Movie Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review us favorably if you like what you're hearing. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason underscore Leroy, and you can follow Rebecca at Fight Balance. And you can also like the Binge on Facebook. On behalf of Rebecca and myself, thank you for listening. Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. There There goes the binge. binge.